Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he thought he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. No terrifying intro this week, John. I'm Matt. I'm a member here. Uh, Matt Nelson, also an elder candidate, together with with Mark Mahalski, who preached last week. Uh, so thanks for letting me preach this morning. Just hit me this morning for the first time. I'm a little slow. The virgin singing her lullaby, that's really a cool thought to have. She's with her child. It's, it's amazing. Well, I'm so excited to be here this morning and finally preach to you from Philippians. It was the first book of the Bible that Elena and I memorized together several years ago. And the last. <laughs> Although not, not the last scripture we've memorized together. but Then we memorized this passage with Jephthah in October and November this year. Mark and I sat down with Pastor Dave for a series of preaching classes in summer 2022, and uh, we've been moving toward this moment at a snail's pace due to the nature of life. But what a sweet providence that finally getting to this point of preaching this passage, which primarily concerns the incarnation of God the Son, that it should fall during the season of Advent. What, a be- what better Advent passage could you think of? Advent is a time of reflecting on and celebrating the coming of Jesus, fully God from times eternal, stepping into our world, condescending as one of us, ultimately to lift us back up with him. Well, it's hard enough to drop in out of nowhere and land in the middle of Philippians. I mean, is there any other context in which you would start reading a letter or a book from the middle? But to make matters worse, these seven verses are likely poetry rather than prose. In fact, they may not even be written entirely or or at all by the Apostle Paul himself. Many theologians think this section of Paul's letter is a hymn, maybe a common hymn of the church, which Paul embellished for his purposes in this letter. We can't answer these questions with much certainty, but it does appear that the language used in these verses is distinctly different from the rest of Paul's letter. There are words in here that Paul uses rarely, maybe not at all, in his other writings. Poetry is something of a combination of words and pictures. You know the old saying, picture is worth a thousand words. So Paul's saying a lot in a little space by including this bit of poetry or song here. That being said, A number of sermons could be written to address the various important layers of this text and its implications, and we won't be able to view every facet of truth contained here this morning. 
But for another crack at this passage, I encourage you to check out Pastor Mike's sermon from the same verses on our website from his summer 2019 Philippians series, where the whole book was preached through. The main theme of Paul's letter to the Philippians is his address to the church at Philippi who are experiencing some form of suffering for the gospel. The essence of his letter is his call in chapter 1, verse 27, to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. He calls them to do so by suffering joyfully because of the worth of Christ and in the hope of future glory with Christ in the age to come. The structure of my sermon will be as follows. First, we'll briefly discuss the nature of Paul's life as a first century missionary. Then we'll zoom in and examine Paul's reasons for writing his, this letter to the Philippian church. And then finally, we'll break down chapters two verses, chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, sometimes known as the Christ hymn. We'll do it in three sections. Paul's admonishment to have the mind of Christ in verse 5 his description of the humiliation of Christ in the Incarnation in verses 6 to 8, and finally the exaltation of Christ in verses 9 to 11. It's my hope for you to see two main things this morning. The first is that being consumed with the worth of Christ results in a joyful response, not only to favorable and comfortable circumstances, but also and perhaps even more to the suffering and want associated with Jesus Christ and partnering in gospel ministry. And the second is that we're being called to think like Christ, who was motivated to endure suffering by setting his hope on the future glory that awaited him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that although we were once slaves to sin, but when the fullness of time had come, you sent forth your Son, born of a woman, to redeem us so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because we are sons, you have sent the Spirit of your Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we're no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, then we are heirs through God. Help us to receive your word this morning as we consider Advent, the coming of your Son in flesh like ours, and the second Advent, when he will return exalted in glory as we consider the worth of Christ and our future hope as heirs of glory with him. Amen. So first, the nature of Paul's life as a first century missionary. No doubt being a missionary in the 21st century is difficult, as some here can attest. There are financial challenges, relational conflicts, isolation, dangers from both private individuals and governments, and temptations to discouragement and fear. As challenging as it, was, as it is today, it was much, much more difficult for the Apostle Paul in every way. Who pioneered missions, uh, Paul pioneered missions to the area of Turkey and other regions around the Mediterranean Sea, known then as Asia. The exclusivity of the claims of Christ meant threats from the polytheistic Roman sphere who saw Paul's message as dangerously intolerant, as well as the Jewish populations dispersed in these areas who saw him as a hateful heretic. As such, to say that Paul suffered a lot at the hands of men is a gross understatement. He wrote in his second letter to the church at Corinth about his numerous imprisonments, countless beatings, 
and being often near death. Five times, he said, I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. One time I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure of my anxi- on me of my anxiety for all the churches. So to be a Christian at this time, and especially to proselytize as a missionary, was to be something of an enemy of the state. It sounds more and more remarkably similar to our current context, does it not? Having talked about Paul's life as a missionary in the first century, let's now zoom into Paul's reason for writing this letter to the Philippians. He wrote it during one of a number of imprisonments for proclaiming the gospel. Roman prisons were unlike the jails and prisons we have here. Prisoners were not provided with basic material needs like food and clothing as they are today. One of these examples is seen in Paul's final letter, his letter, second letter to his protege, Timothy, where he asked Timothy to bring his cloak so that the old man could keep warm in the cold weather. Paul highlights in this letter, in chapter 1, verse 5, and chapter 4, verse 15, the long-standing financial and material partnership that he had with the Philippian church in his missionary work. But now he's writing this letter to thank them for personally caring for him in relation to his imprisonment, to assure them that he's received their gift, and commend their delivery man, Epaphroditus, for his faithfulness by explaining that he didn't run off with the money but was waylaid by a deadly illness. Paul's primary concern in the letter, however, is not at all for himself or his own suffering, but for the manner in which the church at Philippi was responding to their suffering as partners in the gospel. In chapter 1, he addresses their mental or heart response, which includes discouragement that he's locked up in prison, their fear that he may die there, their fear of their own opponents, and their anxiety and discontent. Then he addresses their relational response, including divisions, rivalry, pride, selfishness. He also addresses temptation to gospel compromise when he warns them against the Judaizers who would force them to mix the gospel and the Mosaic law. It's clear from Paul's writing that the church at Philippi was struggling to respond with faith to the trials, temptations, and threats that they faced. They seemed to be caught off guard by suffering. Paul wants them to see that their current circumstances give no warrant for this kind of response. And he does so by reframing his own suffering and theirs in the light of two truths. The first is the inestimable worth of Christ. And the second is the certain hope of future glory that awaits them on the day of Christ. Both of these are grounded in the absolute sovereignty or control of God over their circumstances. So first, Paul's eagerness for Christ to get glory far outweighs any desire that he has for comfort or safety. 
He wants the church to understand that his imprisonment is no hindrance whatsoever to God's plan. Rather, it's an opportunity. Paul recognizes the sovereign hand of God over his own circumstances when he says in chapter 1, verse 16, I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Then he helps the church to see that it's no different for them when he says in 129 to 30, For it has been granted to you also that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Why does he talk this way? Does he get some kind of twisted pleasure from suffering? No. Rather, it is abundantly clear throughout Philippians that he is so enthralled with Christ that he is selfless. He's eager to be poured out in whatever way will most bring glory to Christ. This is why he can say about his own suffering, So what? Only that in every way Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Or, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice. He's eager to die if it brings him more of Christ. In fact, Paul is so selflessly enamored with the glory of Christ that he says in Romans 9.3 he could wish himself cut off permanently from Christ in order that the full measure of Christ's bride from among the Jews might be brought in. What about you? How do you see your circumstances? Oh, what a beautiful morning. Oh, what a beautiful day. I've got a beautiful feeling. Everything's going my way. Perhaps, but likely not. <laughs> Often things don't go my way. They don't go our way, right? And how about Grace Church? Missionaries in hostile secret locations, losing an elder every year, hostile culture all around us trying to box us in. Seems pretty dismal. Paul says it's not. What opportunities to magnify Christ are you missing with, with your church, your wife, your kids, your job? Because you've had different expectations or different priorities. Is Christ magnified the chief desire of our hearts? Does it lead you to sacrifice and suffer without counting the cost? Is that being manifested in tangible ways? Or instead, are you a grumpy murmurer? Paul's reframing of his and the Philippian circumstances is it's not a subject, subjective motivational speech, but the truest, most objective understanding of reality possible. God is truly sovereign over suffering, and Christ is truly better than life. If you're struggling to re relate to Christ in your circumstances in that way, I encourage you to camp out in Philippians for a little while. Now let's dig into our passage for this morning, chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, the Christ hymn. I've said that Paul is writing his letter to reframe their understanding or fix their perspective on suffering in two ways. The first is his absolute preoccupation with the worth of Christ. 
The second way in which Paul reframes things for the Philippians is at the heart of this passage, namely the certain hope of future glorification that awaits them on the day of Christ. By the time we reach chapter 2, verse 5, Paul has just finished introducing them to his imperative to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ by putting off fear, division, discord, and selfish pride, and putting on faith, joy, unity, and humility. Now in verse 5, he tells them how. By sharing the goal and the hope that motivated Christ in his incarnation. And he calls this Christ-like perspective having the mind of Christ. Having considered what the commentators had to say in light of the several questions I mentioned at the beginning, and that it does appear even in English to be uncommonly poetic language for Paul, I'm fairly convinced that this is a poem, a hymn, or a song. And as I also said earlier, I think he used it here because this word picture paints a thousand words to get his point across, both efficiently and powerfully. I think he used it here to make his primary appeal in the letter because he knew they were already singing it regularly and therefore they would have a hard time objecting to what he was trying to say. So I think he used a common hymn of the early church as a particularly impactful literary tool. I want to draw out for you from these verses what Christ did and why he did it by looking at his humiliation in verses 6 to 8 and his exaltation in verses 9 to 11 in order to reveal Paul's primary point in the hymn, showing what godly suffering looks like and in order that they might imitate the hope that Christ had. First is humiliation. Paul writes in six, uh, verses 6 to 8 that though he was in the form of God, Christ did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or asserted, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul's talking here about Christ in the flesh, the incarnate Son of God, considering, as a human, what attitude should he take toward God? And as a man, he did not consider grasping for godlikeness the appropriate thing to do. But can you think of anyone who did grasp at being equal with God? Isn't that just what Adam did back in the garden in the beginning? What deceitful promise did Satan, that ancient serpent, make? What promise did he make? You'll be like God. This seed of sinful desire lodged in the heart of Adam so that he ate of the forbidden tree. He sought equality with God, no longer to be a humble servant dependent on his master. Whereas Adam was a humble and dependent creature that proudly sought to usurp God's throne, Paul says here that Jesus, literally God himself, in considering, what is the most humiliating way to make myself nothing? Became like Adam. Like us. What, what irony. But we need to understand who Adam was in order to understand what Christ was accomplishing in these verses. In Psalm 8, verses 3 to 6, 
David humbly marveled at the place which God gave Adam among the rest of his creatures in creation. He says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, all those things we look at today, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The answer is nothing. Yet you have made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. David wonders that God should have given man this special place of honor over his creation as his steward or vice regent to have dominion, like ruling like a king over everything as God's representative. But we know how the story, rest of the story goes, wasn't good enough for Adam. Grasping for the scepter, he fell and brought himself under God's curse. And because he did that, God cursed Adam, bringing confusion, frustration, pain, futility, and death on him and on the rest of creation. Paul makes it explicit elsewhere, namely Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, that Adam was more than just the first man among many humans. He had a unique position, as we saw in Psalm 8. Paul says Adam was a type, a type of Christ. What he means is, we look at Adam's position in order to understand Christ's position. Adam was, and still is, the representative of all people born after him. So Paul can say, In Adam, all die. This is still true. The reason all people everywhere are experiencing the effects of God's curse on Adam is that we're his offspring and he is our father. If you're not in Christ, you are still in Adam and under God's curse. Before you get too excited about how unfair that all sounds. Listen to the rest of 1 Corinthians 15:22. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. If you're hoping in Christ as your representative, Paul says you are acknowledging that he functions in the same way for you as Adam once did. This is why he can actually refer to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15.45 as the last Adam. So what does this have to do with the Christ hymn in Philippians 2? Verses 6 to 8 show that Christ is the new and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man by doing what Adam failed to do. As a man, Christ humbled himself under God, considered himself a servant, and was obedient to the point of a humiliating slave's death on a cross. Christ, as the last Adam, took Adam's place for all who would hope in him. But not only are we freed from Adam's curse through Christ's representation, we're also brought to an exalted place that Adam never dreamed of. In the book of Hebrews, David's song from Psalm 8 about the wonderful position God gave man, which Adam frustrated, gets redeemed and fulfilled in Christ. The writer to the Hebrews says, We're speaking of the world to come. 
It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection under him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, the author of their salvation, perfect through suffering. So, Christ redeems the position originally given to Adam and applies it to his offspring. We do not presently see everything in subjection to him, though, do we? We're suffering here. The world is uniting against Christ and his church. We suffer from opponents, circumstances, and our own sin. What's going on? Notice what he said in Hebrews 2.5. We are speaking of the world to come. The exaltation of Christ is where the second half of the Christ hymn directs us in verses 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What was Christ's mindset in the Incarnation? He was a humble servant, obedient to a certain death. But what motivated him? The second half of the hymn shows that Christ was driven by the future hope of exaltation that would lead to the Father getting glory. The assurance of a glorious victory over his enemies is what fueled Christ. Hebrews 12.2 puts it this way, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And Hebrews 10.13 says he's been waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. What a marvelous plot twist that Christ's obedient service, taking the form of a humble creature through suffering and death, is the pathway through which he was declared as God before all creation. These last two verses of the Christ hymn, verses 10 and 11, are a direct quote from Isaiah 45, 23, which says, To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Paul takes Isaiah's direct quote about the Lord God and says it's about Jesus Christ. Christ knew his suffering would lead to his exaltation and to inestimable glory. His certain hope was on the magnification of the worth of Christ himself and future glory achieved through his suffering and death. So why does the hymn land here? With Christ being exalted to the glory of God the Father, how is that supposed to help the Philippians in their suffering? How do they relate to that? How can they even dare to feel entitled to think as Christ did and to hope as he did? 
It's because Christ not only descended with us, but he also brought us up with him. It's because Ephesians 2.6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The gospel doesn't make us neutral with God. We become adopted sons, heirs with Christ. Paul told the church at Philippi in chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Through Christ, we are not only justified, but also glorified. We are younger brothers and sisters to the king, and therefore we get to share in the inheritance with him. Consider the following verses. Acts 26, 23. The Christ must suffer, being the first to rise from the dead. Not the, not the last, the first. He's not going to be alone. 1 Corinthians 15.20, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, the firstborn from the dead. Hebrews 1.2, his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Hebrews 12.23, we are the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Romans 8.17, We are fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him also. This is the hope to which Paul calls the Philippians when he exhorts them to have the mind of Christ. When he tells them in 127 to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ, he's referring to our citizenship in heaven. Our lives here are to be lived as sojourners and aliens remembering always that we are citizens of our king, that although we do not presently see all things in subjection, yet the victory is sure. Even the worst efforts of the evil one, even the most broken circumstances, are playing right into the hand of God's master plot to exalt the worth of Christ to the glory of God the Father. In conclusion, Philippians generally, and the Christ hymn specifically, call us to three things. First, expect suffering. Why should you be caught off guard? Be aware and beware of your expectations. You should expect suffering in this world. Jesus said it, in this world you will have trouble. If you expect ease, you'll be disappointed. There's a way in which we should be glad to suffer for Christ. An example comes from the early church in Acts 5, where the apostles were arrested for preaching Christ, beaten, and then released. Their response is noteworthy. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I love it. We're to behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Mind your reaction to suffering. When you're out of step with the mind of Christ, pause, repent, look for ways to obey. Second, suffer joyfully. 
Suffering is not a warrant for us to indulge sinful desires, selfish attitudes, be a grumpus, entertain self-pity, or anxiously freak out on our family or the church. Ask someone in your, your DG, how do you see me responding to suffering or my circumstances? When you have the mind of Christ, you'll think of yourself as an instrument rather than a victim. Rather than thinking of what you deserve and constantly demanding it from everyone around you, humbly consider others more important than yourself. Husbands, ask your wives. Wives, ask your husbands. What selfish or conceited attitudes am I displaying toward you? You're not looking forward to lunch anymore. (laughs) And what, what occasions them? Are there ways I can demonstrate considering you more important than myself? Kids, listen close, kids. Have you ever been obedient to the point of death? (laughs) Would it kill you to glorify God by obeying all the way, right away, and with a happy heart? If you're struggling to obey your parents in this way, then you've just discovered the solution you've been looking for. Have the mind of Christ. Rather than yourself, have the glory of Christ as your top goal, your priority. God is directing all things to fulfill his purposes for your good and always to magnify the worth of Christ to the glory of God the Father. Let that be the central desire of our lives. Don't let mistaken expectations lead you to miss out on opportunities to serve, obey, and proclaim Christ in your circumstances. In your marriage, your choices, your parenting, your ministry, your friendships, and your driving. Paul saw being in a Roman prison as an opportunity for Christ to be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. And this brought him unconditional joy. What's your joy rooted in? Try to think right now of circumstances and suffering in your life and view it with the mind of Christ. Is having more of Christ and Christ getting more glory, even if it means suffering, worth it for you? How did Christ think of himself as God's servant? And if you're in Christ, so should you. What does that mean? His interests rather than yours. Let him worry about your welfare and you be about his business. I am put here for the defense of of the gospel. To die is gain. My desire is is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his suffering. Third, set your hope fully on the day of Christ. As the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, life under the sun is vain. If your hope is in this world and this age, you're going to be vexed, confused, frustrated, angry, discouraged, and depressed. It's all meaningless, a chasing after the wind. 
Our citizenship is in heaven, and our hope is to be set on the day of Christ, as it was for Christ, as it was for Paul. This is the path, the pattern, suffering. It's no surprise. Jesus exemplified it. He lived it for us. He's victorious, and he will come back to usher in the kingdom. His suffering was bringing many sons to glory, and so is gospel partnership. And both are cause for rejoicing.